one fifteen through two five. So if you have your scriptures, you can turn there, or it'll be on the wall behind me. A few years ago, uh, I got in the habit. I talked with my parents about this, and since we live three states away from them, I got in the habit of of uh, setting aside time every summer when we would take our kids, and I meet my parents halfway, and I drop them off with them, and they spend a week in Michigan without me. It's a great week. It's a great week for the kids, great week for the parents, great week for the grandparents. And over the last couple of years as we've done that, there was one really funny moment, and I want to tie it into the, the passage that we're going to read this morning, but there's this moment when my kids, just for whatever reason one night, they just went crazy. And my parents called me to tell me about it from Michigan. They were actually just wild all night, and my mom had a meeting at church, and so my dad was watching them, and you don't know my dad probably, but him watching children is either lots of fun or no fun at all. And this night just turned out to be no fun at all. And Noah at the end of the evening needed a bath. And he actually was in the bath. And they have, a, they have a, one of those sprayers, you know, those, those hoses that you can disconnect from the wall. And you can, he started to spray down the whole bathroom. And my dad caught him in the middle of this act. And, and he said, stop, Noah. Now, Noah is our calmest child. I just want you to know. And, and, and as he was in the middle of this act of spraying down the bathroom, my dad walked in and said, stop, what are you doing? All this drywall, all the devastation. Who knows what's going through to the floor below. And my, my, my son looked at his grandfather and aimed the hose directly at his face and sprayed him down. My dad left the room and actually went out to the driveway. My mom pulled in, and he got in his car and said, they're all yours, and he drove away. (laughs) My mom walked into the house to see water just everywhere, and kids doing all sorts of unbelievable things, and the girls were not much better. And there was this question, okay, why do normal children, maybe at that point nine, seven, and five years of age, turn into all of a sudden just these crazy people? And my parents have an apartment next door to their house, and they discovered that uh, when they went up to that apartment, there were about 20 cans of soda that they had had stored away at a, point, at a part of their house. And my, my kids had been sneaking that soda into the apartment, and they had been having a little party off to the side, and nobody knew about this. And they had gone through about 16 cans of soda in one night. So what will take a five-year-old who's usually well-behaved and turn him into somebody who's just absolutely crazy? A lot of energy, right? All that sugar in their system got going, and my kids just went crazy. And and my parents, the next day they called me. They didn't call me that night. They called me the next day, and they said, we didn't know what was going wrong. We wanted to ask you questions. This was so atypical for our children. And and they said, then we caught on. There was soda all over the place in that apartment, and they had been drinking it all day long. And by the end of that night, they were just crazy. And then, of course, by 9 o'clock, they all crashed, predictably. You know, that sugar crashed. And at the end of the day, they're just, they're done, laying out, just pass out. The, the next morning, they just could hardly get out of bed. They're dragging. Their energy level, it, it spiked. Well, we're going to read a passage of scripture this morning, which is about something that's really important to all of our lives. And it's, it's about Jesus specifically. But the reason why it's important, I want to just read these words from Paul's life. And they should be on the, the screen behind you. Can we flip over, Garrett? That's actually not my screen either. All right, here, is the, here are these words. This is first, 
First, it should be Colossians 1.29. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his en- energy, that he powerfully works within me. I just want you to hear for a second these pronouns. For this I, Paul, toil. That's who's writing this passage. Struggling with all his energy. He's talking about an energy that's outside of himself. And then it's moving towards that he powerfully works within me. In other words, Jesus is so powerfully alive within Paul that there is an energy level in his spiritual life that he's found that as he's traveling about and doing what God has called him to do, he's actually traveling with an energy that's not his own. I thought of this this scripture, which is right in the middle of our passage this morning, when I heard Tim last week talk about the fact that if we believe and understand the faith to which we're called, and we understand the history of what God has done, and understand the present reality of what God is doing, then we can believe in a hope-filled tomorrow, and then we can act lovingly in today. And loving doesn't mean just kind and nice. Loving means acting out the kingdom work that God has put in front of us. And each person has that list, that that little thing that we're supposed to do. But it all centers on whether we're actually getting our energy from the right source. And so in this passage, starting with verse 15 of of Colossians 1, Paul's going to lay out This is what your faith is in. And he's going to go into what is probably the longest theological kind of understanding of Jesus, the longest list of who Jesus is in the New Testament. And he just starts labeling things, just throwing them out there. And and his hope is that the church, this is not some theological, philosophical exercise. What he's actually hoping is that we get so ramped up on who our Savior is that we get changed on the inside and that our faith ignites into a passionate love for Jesus and a love for other people that changes the world with the picture of the fact that no matter what we're going through, there is a hope-filled tomorrow based in who this Jesus is. There's a real question as to whether we have a hope for tomorrow based on things that are going on in our life, the fact that we get paid on Friday, the fact that we get to, to take off this Saturday, this, that, or the other thing, there's a retirement, whatever it might be, whatever those things are for our life, we can base our hope on those things or we can base it in who Jesus is and how, who he has always said that he wanted to be. You know, we struggle in our faith with two things, and Tim laid this out last week. One, we struggle with, kind of in, in, in the scriptures, this is called Judaizing. It means to make rules out of what is actually faith. It make, means to replace the relationship with God with a bunch of rules. And then the other thing we struggle with is this kind of spiritual woo-woo faith that says, well, God answers prayer, so if we just pray, it'll all work out. And we don't actually need to engage with our physical lives and do what God has called us to do. Real faith actually parts those two different dangers and says, listen, who Jesus is is actually very physical and not just spiritual. And who Jesus is is actually not just a bunch of rules. It's actually this absolutely mystical, powerful God who planted himself in our midst as an actual human being and changed the world's history through what he accomplished. And and Jesus laid this out and parted those waters of these two broken realities of the human race. And frankly, every religion struggles with one of these two things, and sometimes we struggle with both. And that's true of Christianity as it is true of every other religion. We easily make rules out of what Jesus would want to be a relationship. When we easily make something mystical and so ethereal and so transcendent that we actually don't have anything going on in our practical lives. Those are the two dangers. And Jesus actually lives in the middle of this and says, Listen, you are called to me. You are called to me. And when you see who I am and when you walk in the presence of who I actually am, you won't be tempted by those two dangers and you will be filled with a hope for tomorrow and you will be filled with an energy for today and you will be filled with a worship about who I am because I am God. So let me read this passage of scripture. This goes back, Colossians 1.15 is where we'll begin. And it begins with these words. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now reviled or revealed to his saints. To the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, now listen to these words, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he may powerfully work within me. So just picture Paul walking between what is the Middle East, and sometimes he took ships and sometimes he took horses, but he he travels from the Middle East to Turkey to Greece to Italy. And if you look at a map of the Mediterranean, he may have gotten as far west as Spain, but he's traveling between these points. And as he travels between these points, the question is, what energy keeps him going, walking into situations where people don't respect him, don't respect his God? There's this moment in Athens where, believe it or not, they are so religious that he sits in front of all of the people of that day, and he says, listen, You have gods, and you have idols to each one of these gods, and I want to tell you about the God you don't know, and I know you don't know him because you admit you don't know him because there's an idol sitting here in the middle of your town, and it is is entitled to the unknown God. And he says, "Let let me tell you that I want you to know this God who is above all, beyond all. Let me explain to him his name is Jesus. To have that sort of energy to walk into crowds of people and to reveal his faith again and again and again. I just love this little verse for it says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I suspect that energy that Paul is talking about that's working out in his life that allows him to endure beatings and go through brokenness and get shipwrecked and all of this different stuff, eventually to be martyred, all of that energy comes from what came previously. That faith rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. He goes on for just a little bit more. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. When it comes down to it, God and Jesus in God have accomplished two things. And it's a list of two. That means it's easy to remember, right? 
And this passage is going to reveal both of those things. First, it's going to say, he is the image of the invisible God. And he is the firstborn of creation. The act of God, and whether you know this or not, the Bible uses the word create only about God. It's a word that's absolutely reserved, and no one else is allowed to create. We live in the day of artists, and there's all sorts of kind of emphasis given towards this creative arts perspective in our culture. And yet, what the Bible reveals is that there's a a real difference between what human beings can do and what God can do. And when when a human being creates, they're actually creating out of something, right? They're taking the things that God has already created, and they're turning them into a beautiful reality, something more. But they're actually not taking nothing and making it something. No one has ever done that. And so the first thing the Bible reveals about God is he is the creator. And that is a word reserved only for God. Then it goes on and this passage is going to say he's the head of the church. And it's going to talk about the fact that God does something beyond create. That's actually that he is healing, he is redeeming, he is saving his creation. What's gone wrong with creation is actually being repaired by the God who was rebelled against when it went wrong. And these are, the, these are the thoughts that Paul's going to put his mind around that are going to provide him with energy as he's in the Philippian jail and he's being beaten and then an earthquake sets him free and he's, he moves on to the next town and there he gets beaten again and he, he goes from these kind of confusing realities one after the other to the other never finding home base, never finding the peace that he really wishes for because that's what God's call on his life is. Now, not everybody's called to be Paul, but everybody is called to walk with the energy of Jesus based in the faith in who he is wherever we go. And so this morning, I want to just kind of focus on who Jesus is. This, this scripture is called Nothing But Jesus, this passage, this, this whole theme that we're talking about this morning. So nothing, all is Jesus, everything is Jesus. Our faith is centered in who this person is. And we're going to walk through just the first few lines. This is the the beginning part of the passage. It reveals these few things. By him all things were created, through him and for him all things were made, and all things hold together by his power. Just if you're looking in your scriptures, you can look at verse 15. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This goes all the way back to Moses, where Moses says, I would see your glory, God. If I had one wish, this is what I would wish. Not for world peace, not for the people of God to be planted in the land that God had promised them. He's in the middle of this great exodus. No, he says, I would just long to see God. And God says, well, you can't see me and live. And so he puts him in the cleft of a rock and he walks in front of that cleft of the rock and he proclaims his glory and he uses words that are used all across the Old Testament. I am gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. What this scripture tells us is that when Jesus comes to earth, he is the image, the physical image, the tangible reality of God himself. But don't lose the fact that it's saying he is God himself. It's not just the image as though he's some holographic image onto our planet where we see God through him just visually. No, he's actually God present among us, right? In Advent, we actually celebrate this by using the word Emmanuel, which means in literal Hebrew, God with us. When Jesus becomes a human being, he is God with us. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That line means that the God of all creation has decided to birth all of creation through this physical person, Jesus the Christ. And through Jesus, everything that has ever been made was made. And it goes on to make that point even more clearly. For by him all things were created. And then it goes, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In Paul's day, people worshipped these gods that they knew and they didn't know. There was this 
spiritual reality around them. And they realized when they actually sacrificed to some idols, things actually did change. And all across the ancient world, this is true. We tend to think of those things as merely physical or merely kind of weird spirituality, but they actually worked. And that's because there are spiritual things other than God. And they're There's a reality to this creating of idols and these people walked under those idol broken worship systems and these are the words that were used for them. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of the gods that you think there are, all of the spiritual things that govern this planet, they were originally created for him, by him, and through him. In other words, whatever you think you're supposed to worship is so much less than this Jesus because the world was already created for him. And those things you're worshiping are lesser realities because the God of the universe has already birthed the firstborn of all creation and everything that is ever going to come to be or ever has come to be flows through his creative ability. So you're worshiping lesser gods because Jesus is the origin of those gods and they may be fallen demons that have been broken and all of this sort of thing. They may be angels. All of this spiritual reality that we don't really know that much about, he kind of lists in a category and says, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever you think is worthy of worship, whether it's the stuff that's material in your life or whether it's the spiritual stuff out there, whether it's your system of rules that you would like to replace Christianity with, whatever you think is important, in your life, it, if, it's, if it has any goodness to it at all, was formed in Jesus the Christ. By him, all things were created. This shatters our picture of who Jesus is that sometimes we get stuck on when we're looking at a little baby in a manger. He looks so small and weak. And we love that picture of Jesus because it reminds us that he came like him. If you listen to Tony Evans' video, he said in Luke that, that Jesus became a man. And Luke reveals Jesus as a man so we could see the commonality between us and our Savior. It's a great, brilliant, beautiful picture. And yet that's not all he is, right? He didn't start when that baby was born in a manger. The pre-existent Christ goes all the way back to the very beginning when God said, let there be light. This was the, the God speaking those words into light. I'm very tempted to believe, by the way, that Jesus is the person you spe- see speaking with Israel throughout the Old Testament. Again and again and again, you see him in a relationship with human beings long before he ever becomes that baby in a manger. He is God incarnate, always living from heaven, always walking out his call, and always in relationship to us. And so the first part of what Paul's going to say, deeply theological and a little tough to understand, is by him all things were created. And all things were created through him. And then it says this word, and we just got to focus, these little prepositions. You know what a preposition is, right? In him, by him, through him, for him, those sorts of words. They're all very important in this passage. All things were created through him. That means they're emanating through who he is. And then they're created for him. Human beings have a purpose. And it's found in this little bit of scripture. We were created. And why? You know, science is really good at explaining how things happen, right? That's what science does. It actually looks back and says, how did we get here? And we can disagree about some of the science that goes on in our day, but it's always sitting there going, how did, how, how did this happen? How can we recreate it? How can we understand it? But it never answers the question, why? Why? And you know, there's a gigantic question in our culture today. There, there's this broken world that we live in. I, I was just deeply struck when I was in Michigan a few weeks ago. On Monday, after I preached at our church that we, that we used to attend, and we had this kind of spiritual service. It was a really moving moment. I got word that a, a guy I had known grown up, one of a, a, of a growing list in my life, he actually committed suicide. And the funeral was this past Monday, a week later. 
And it, this was just the nicest guy in our youth group who was always kind to us little kids. He's about 10 years older than me, but I remember him as I was kind of bouncing basketballs in the gym of this church as a little child. This guy would always kind of be just generous and kind to those of us. And, and something happened in his heart, and he drove back to the childhood home he was grown up in, and he ended his life in that car. He left a wife and college-aged daughters and parents who are grieving There's this brokenness, and who can doubt that what was going on in his heart is that he lost track of why he was here, who he was here for. It's easy for any of us to lose that reality. And what this passage says is this Jesus who created us and is continuously creating our existence is doing more than that. He actually gave us a purpose in him as well. He created us for himself. He likes us. Then it goes on one step more, and it says, He is before all things, and in him All things hold together. Imagine the cross of Jesus as it's laying on the ground and he's being nailed to it. And imagine the fact that all of the reality that we live in the middle of, all of this material that we're surrounded by, all of it is emanating from his creative ability still. And if Jesus stopped thinking about us, I like to wonder if possibly we would just stop existing altogether. If Jesus didn't think we were here for him as a world, if there wasn't this redemptive plan that we were in the middle of and he he, he didn't love us like he does, then we would stop existing. That means that in one sense, the Roman soldiers who were nailing the nails into his hands and to his feet were actually only there because Jesus was deciding to keep them there. That means Pilate, as he's washing his hands of Jesus' crucifixion, is actually only there because Jesus allowed him to be there. That means that the Sadducees and the priests that would condemn him to death, the people who would turn over and focus and decide that, listen, we would rather have this shadow God instead of the real God who has shown up in our midst. All of those people are still being chosen to be existent because of this God, because, and in him, all things hold together. The very cells of my body right now are holding together Because Jesus the Christ has decided that I want him to be here. Isn't that interesting? And Paul says, listen, you might underestimate this, Jesus, if you don't understand who he is and where he's come from. If you don't understand how far back in our history, he was there with Abraham, he was there with Moses, he was there with David, he was there with Hezekiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. He is here in the present tense now. He never stopped existing. He never started existing. He is God. He is the firstborn of all creation because everything that is created flows through him. And no other human being could ever claim that. Famously, Pablo Picasso, when he was painting, used to say these words. And he would paint and he would push everybody off to the side and he would sit with his creator. You know, every artist has their their process. And he would sit with a gigantic canvas and he would be spraying paint on the wall and doing all of these different things that he did so massively, beautifully, wonderfully. They're amazing works of art. And yet he had this just self-centered narcissism to him. And he would say, I am God. I am God, and he would whisper it again and again and again and again because in order to get all of the creative juices out of his soul, he believed he had to focus the world's energies on himself. When he, when he died, one of his ex-wives, one of his nephews, and a girlfriend all committed suicide because life without Pablo Picasso was unthinkable because he was such an absolutely brilliant force that people around him couldn't imagine that they were living for anything else besides living for Pablo Picasso. And he loved that reality. He loved people looking at him the the way they should look at God. Jesus is the only one who actually can say that. And not only is he saying, you live here for me, 
But he's actually saying, I'm holding you together. I'm loving you. I created you. Your reality is held in the midst of my hands. And it's in a process that you have decided upon that is broken and damaging. And yet it's very much because I am here that you are here. And I love you. You're not here just as some sort of narcissistic exercise for a God who is self-focused. You're actually here because he loves each one of us and cares for us. The picture of Jesus just loving those Roman soldiers. Can you imagine? He decided to let us live through our worst moments of failure. That's what Paul teaches. It goes on, and he does a whole other set of things, and that's, this is the saving part. He is the creator God, the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation. But then it says, he is the head of the church. He was the first to rise from the dead. The fullness of God dwells in him. He made peace through his blood, and he reconciled those who were once estranged to himself. Read the scripture with me. It says, and he is the, dead, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We're very tempted in our day to separate the future of our world from the present of who we are, right? We're tempted to think that, and I remember this as a kid, there's this picture of heaven that went around that had us floating like kind of transcendent spirits on clouds, and we kind of played harps, you know, and looked like angels. My dad once told me, he said, when I was a little kid in Sunday school, I, I decided at one point I didn't want to be a Christian because I didn't want to float around on, on, a, on a cloud and play a harp. It just, I, I never liked harp music. He actually said that. And he told his Sunday school teacher, and his Sunday school teacher wanted to kick him out of Sunday school. Well, if that's your reality of what's coming next, well, that's a very sad and limited reality. What the Bible tells us is that everybody It's risen because this whole story is the story of a creator God who got rebelled against and the brokenness that is in our history is actually building toward a a redemption where there is a recreation, a new heaven and a new earth and every human being gets a new body and we are saved into the presence of Jesus Christ if we believe in him. In other words, when this passage says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, what it means is he is the only one so far to rise from the dead on his own power as God, but he's not the last. He is the first, not the only, not the last. This is the plan of God for every believer. This is the plan of God for every person who trusts in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul writes is, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And you don't have to fear death because this God has birthed a resurrection beyond the dead. That is an immense hope, right? I find it fascinating that Paul focuses on the resurrection even before he gets to the death of Christ. But he's going to go on and focus on that as well. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This Jesus was and is God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross making peace by the blood of his cross. We talk a lot about peace in our day. And the passage, this passage of scripture reveals something that's so important, and that's that without the shedding of blood, you know the passage from Hebrews, right? There is no remission of sins. Our sins don't go away. Isaiah would write that I can make your sins that are as scarlet as white as snow. My blood can turn these things that are blots against humanity, or blots against God, and turn them into something as white as what it looked like yesterday morning when I woke up. That's a beautiful picture. But it's not, just, it's not the only picture. It says that peace comes through that remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no peace. We can pray. There's one of the Old Testament prophets who, who prays for peace again and again. And God says, peace, peace. You speak it again and again. But there is no peace. Why is that? 
Because peace either flows through Jesus or it's actually not peace. And frankly, the peace within, within us is the most difficult peace to find. Sometimes it's easier to find peace with my family members over Thanksgiving dinner, which is not all that easy, than it is to find peace within each one of us. Paul writes about that too. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, if you take those words apart, it says the parts of yourself are fighting against your natural state and they're fighting against God. You felt estranged like somebody who was in the family of God but was not actually invited to Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. You felt like you were out there because your sin, which you had chosen, had separated you from the reality of who God is. But that's not the end of the story. He has made peace through his blood and he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, there's a beautiful hope in our future. Anybody not struggle with temptation? Come on, just be honest. Anybody not struggle? We all struggle, right? And one of the lies of Satan is that when we struggle with whatever that besetting sin is, that little thing that keeps digging into our lives that we just struggle to get rid of, when, we, when we're walking through the middle of that, one of the lies of Satan is that it will never end. And when Paul writes about hope and faith and love in the first part of Colossians, as he'll write in 1 Corinthians and as he'll write in many other passages, when he's talking about that hope, one of the things that's going away is the temptation. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, beyond temptation. The resurrected bodies no longer have this. The reality of who Jesus is has created us in him, by him, and for him, and is holding us together still. And he is the head of this redemptive movement, the church, that we're supposed to be a part of. Church is not just a gathering of people being religious and living by a bunch of rules. No, it's far, far more than just a club like that. It's actually something that's supposed to be redeemed, redemptive beyond the world. We're redeemed to bless the world around us. When Jesus talks about it, he says, you are to be salt and light. You're supposed to illuminate the world around you with the love and light of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, and then you're supposed to preserve its reality because of what God is doing in you. It's an amazing picture. And all of it's centered in Jesus. And I can only imagine as Paul travels from country to country to country, as he's struggling with the energy he needs to get through, it's Jesus' energy again and again. Like my kids kind of hopped up on too much sugar because they drank all this soda. Paul walks from, from city to city and looks very much like somebody who has more energy, more passion than he can contain within one person. And he wanders around and he teaches this gospel and it sometimes gets him alienated against his fellow man, but it constantly blesses people with the knowledge of Jesus. Within a couple hundred years, the church will expand to all of those different areas where Paul will witness. Those those cities become absolutely amazing Christ-centered cities that God uses Paul to transform along with other people. And so what's happening in this passage is the truth about Jesus is being disseminated because somebody is so absolutely energized by who Jesus is. It's very important for us in the church that we constantly come back to this person of Jesus, that we don't somehow get beyond who Jesus is, that we don't somehow get so much about church and so much about community and so much about relationships and so much about budgets and so much about all the things in our lives. Even if we're doing the good work of church, it's somehow less than the pure work of worshiping Jesus the Christ. And if we're going to be who the church is called to be, we're always going to be centered on this truth, not what church is all about. We're going to be centered on who Jesus is. 
And our faith has to be centered on this Christ reality or else it will somehow lose its way. And it'll be lost to this way or that direction. We'll create rules where there is a relationship. We'll create spirituality where there's actually a God who wants to be honored and feared. We'll create this kind of ambient religion. Whatever it is that we are struggling with, it constantly has to come back to this truth about who Jesus is. In our worship task force, we've been trying to figure out how to worship Jesus effectively during this time. Colossians is maybe the book in the New Testament that's most centered on Jesus. And this might be the most focused kind of picture of who Jesus is. It just throws words at you. And I'm I'm throwing them at you even more this morning. I get that. But at the end, I think what we have to do is we have to worship. And there's all sorts of different types of worship, right? We have to worship Jesus the Messiah. And so on the worship task force, we came up with this thing and we, I have to be careful here, right, Tim? Because, because we call it a creed. And you know, the Church of the Brethren doesn't like creeds because they came from this terrible war where people fought over creeds. Well, I'm not going to fight anybody over this creed, but creeds are a thing that we worship around. That's what they are if they work well. And so we wrote this up, and it's just about Jesus. It's three slides long. And so what I want to ask you to do is at the end of all of what we've seen about Jesus, and let me remind you what we've seen so far. And that's that by Jesus, all things were created. Through Jesus and for Jesus, all things were made. And all things are held together by Jesus' power. And Jesus is the head of the church, the first to rise from the dead, the fullness of God among us. He made peace through his blood and he reconciled those who were once estranged to himself. We are here and in the family of God because of this Jesus. That's a list, seven points or eight points long that reminds us that Jesus is the single most important person in history and he's the single most important person in this room right now. We have to worship, right? That's what we have to do. So what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you in closing to read this with me. And you have to read it with passion. Can you do that? And I think you've got to stand up to do this. I think we just need to say the name Jesus and then start to read. And I'll lead us and you read along with me. I'm not going to read it and then you read it. We're going to read it all together, all right? So let's say it together. Say the first word, Jesus. The creator who was before all, the anointed one who was hoped for, the light of the world, the teacher who is truth, the lamb who was slain, the warrior who will win, the king who has come. Jesus, he was born of a virgin. He taught the people. He was killed on a cross, buried with the dead, and is risen. He is eternally alive. Jesus, He created everything and holds it all together by the power of his word. His shed blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. To Jesus is due all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. And this morning, God, we just want you to hear that we worship Jesus the Christ, that we would center and focus this church on Jesus the Christ. We would ask that if there's anything in our church that isn't focused and in deep love with Jesus Christ, that you would just bless us with purification to be the cleansed church that you would want us to be, Lord God, so that everything that happens at Parker Ford and everything that happens beyond us in the region because of who we are stems in our lives because of who you are first. We would ask that your worship would be birthed in us so strongly that we can't get up in the morning without honoring the God of the universe and what he's done through Jesus. And we can't walk a day in our lives without connecting and walking in an intimate connection with this Jesus who has offered himself to us. And we would ask that, Lord God, what people speak about this church and these people centuries from now is that they are people who found a way to worship Jesus in purity. We would ask that in the name of Jesus. We pray these things in that name, which is above all names. Amen.